Hello, listeners. What you're about to hear is a special episode of Law Technology Now about Brexit. Because there have been developments since we recorded the episode, we have a brief update from our host, Ralph Baxter, who is currently on the road. Hello, Ralph. Hey, Lawrence, and thanks. Since we recorded the attached episode, the EU and the UK have agreed to an 11th hour, three-month extension of the Brexit deadline. The deadline is now January 31, 2020, but you'll hear on the episode discussion of the old deadline, which was October 31. There's also been some progress on reaching a deal between the EU and the UK on the Brexit transition, but we have no way of knowing whether such a deal ultimately will happen. In this special episode, the Bird and Bird partners provide guidance on the key issues and actions U.S. companies need to consider to comply with Brexit. For the purpose of the episode, we assumed that the Brexit occurs without a deal. Much of the guidance will be applicable deal or no deal, but that said, if there is a deal, we'll update this episode to take into account any changes made by the deal. I hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly enjoyed recording it. Back to you, Lawrence. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Ralph. And now, on to the show. Welcome to a special episode of Law Technology Now. Today, we'll be focusing on Brexit and its implications for U.S. companies doing business in the United Kingdom. I'm Ralph Baxter, and I'll be your host for today's episode. You'll be hearing more from me on the Legal Talk Network going forward, because next month, I will join Dan Linna as co-host of Law Technology Now. But today, we have a special episode driven by the changes the imminent implementation of Brexit will bring. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payment and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. All right, let's get started. Unless something happens, either an 11th hour deal between the EU and the UK or an extension of the deadline, Brexit will finally become a reality on October 31. And that's 17 days from the date on which we are recording this episode. Any U.S. business that's been operating in the U.K. has been considering what to do about Brexit ever since the referendum passed back in 2016. But now that it seems imminent uh, that Brexit really will happen, we thought it would be good to have an episode where we take a look at what Brexit really means and some specific issues that all U.S. companies operating in the U.K. should consider. To address these issues, we've assembled a panel from the London-based law firm Bird & Bird, all of whom have particular insight into Brexit and what it will mean for U.S. companies. Bird & Bird is a U.K. origin firm founded in 1846 in London, which over the years has grown to be one of the largest law firms in the world, with 1,500 lawyers in 30 offices located in 20 countries around the globe. It was one of the first law firms to organize around the business sectors of its clients as opposed to the practices uh, of the firm or other internal issues, and it's best known for its work in IP and the technology sector. A year ago, Bird & Bird opened a representative office in San Francisco to facilitate serving U.S.-based companies with their issues outside the United States, and I thought that made them an ideal set of guests to have on this episode to talk about Brexit. Today, we're going to start by focusing on the basics of Brexit, what it means in general, and then we're going to drill down 
on four issues that are time-sensitive and uh, particularly important for U.S. companies operating in the U.K. So, to start with uh, a general overview, I want to welcome Roger Bickerstaff, one of the leading technology lawyers in the United Kingdom and one of the partners responsible for Bird and Bird's new San Francisco office. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thank you very much, Ralph. And uh, in the first place, I'll, I'll just say a little bit about uh, what Brexit means in practice as a bit of an overview. And uh, say so in the first place, Brexit means, it's always worth making clear that Brexit means the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union. And just to be clear, when we're talking about the United Kingdom here, we're talking about England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. We're not talking about the Republic of Ireland. The Republic of Ireland will be staying in the EU. And so from a business perspective and a trade perspective, what that means is that the UK is leaving the single European market in people, in goods, and services. And it's also going to be leaving the EU customs union. Well, that, that's a little bit debatable at the moment uh, in the current political discussions. There's going to be two completely separate business territories of the UK and the EU. And then from the legal perspective, what that means is the UK is going to be leaving behind the fundamental jurisdiction of the European Court as being the Supreme Court uh, of, of the UK. So some quite radical changes uh, from a UK perspective. Right. So the, so the fundamental change is literally profound in terms of the context and structure of law for the United Kingdom. So obviously the path has been uh, long and uh, politically complicated since the referendum passed three and a half years ago. So can you bring our audience up to date on uh, where we are in this process and what needs to be done for the UK to leave the EU? I can in very brief terms here, uh, Ralph, because it's, as you say, it's been an incredibly complicated and tortuous process, uh, politically very divisive in the country. And in uh, 2016, as, as you say, the UK voted quite narrowly. In fact, 52% in favor of leaving to 48% wanting to remain. The process itself was kicked off by something called the Article 50 notice under the Treaty of the European Union. And that notice gave two years' notice of the departure uh, from the uh, EU, and that notice was given on March the 29th, 2017, i.e. about nine months after the referendum itself. And that two-year period has now been extended a couple of times, and the current leave date is now October the 31st of 2019, unless there is another extension, as you've said, Ralph. But the default position that we have now is that unless something happens to extend uh, the notice period further, the default position is now to leave uh, the European Union on October the 31st. This is politically a very fast-moving process. This podcast, as you said, Ralph, is, is recorded on October the 14th, so the situation could change uh, by the time people are listening to this podcast. It's also worth saying that much of what we're discussing in this podcast relates to the no-deal Brexit situation, i.e. What, what happens if we leave without a deal. If there is a deal, it's quite likely that there'll be something called a transition period, and that will introduce a period of standstill. And in fact, in, in that case, then a lot of the issues will stand still through to the end of the transition period, and that will run through probably through to the end of December 2020. You can see, Ralph, it's, it's quite a complicated process. 
Right. So for our purposes today, we're going to talk about uh, Brexit as if there will be no deal. And then, as you say, if, if there is, uh, then the rules that apply will be the rules that emanate from the deal that is made. Now, one, one uh, key issue, fundamental issue about this, if there is a no-deal Brexit, what happens to EU law uh, in terms of its application after Brexit, after November 1st, in the UK? Well, that's, that's a really interesting issue for us as lawyers. And in fact, one of the things which has been clarified in the UK Withdrawal Act is that all of EU law, which is directly effective currently, uh, as we're members of the EU, will be implemented into UK law as a component of the Withdrawal Act as soon as we leave the EU. So that means that we're not going to have a huge gap in United Kingdom law. We're going to have all of EU law incorporated into UK law uh, by means of that act. All right. So that's for, for our audience. This is a, an important fundamental idea that there won't be a moment when suddenly the EU principles, the EU rules go out of application, uh, at least in the transition period. If there is no deal, EU law is incorporated into UK law and then uh, events will proceed as we go through the transition. All right. Well, thank you very much, Roger, for that introduction. And now we're going to turn to specific issues, um, as I said earlier. And the first one we're going to talk, and, and, and by the way, on each of these issues, I'm going to ask our panelists uh, to give us an overview of what, what the issue is, and then to uh, share with us uh, two or three specific recommendations for action for U.S. companies on these issues. We're going to start with a very fundamental issue, people. Uh, most companies who operate in the United Kingdom, whether they're from the United States or otherwise, incorporate EU nationals into their workforce. And obviously, once the UK is no longer part of the EU, uh, this promises to be more complicated than when uh, the UK was part of the EU and it was all one, uh, one market. So to discuss this issue, uh, we have Yuichi Sakin, who is Burdenbird's head of business immigration. Welcome, Yuichi. Thanks, Ralph. So from an immigration perspective, there will be a transition period, as Roger mentioned, until the end of December 2020. So this means U.S. employers in the U.K. can continue to recruit EU national employees, as they can do now, uh, without having to obtain a valid work permit. From January 2021, skilled migrants from all countries, including EU countries, will require a valid work permit in order to work in the U.K. So now, will these rules for the work permit continue indefinitely into the future? How will companies continue to build their workforce to include EU nationals in the UK? Yes, that's a very good question. And uh, for existing EU nationals and their family members who are already in the UK, there is a scheme called the EU Settlement Scheme. It's designed to be a very simple scheme, which is online and is free. And it allows EU nationals to register their status under UK law so they can continue to live and work in the UK after Brexit. Um, at the moment, um, there have been about 1.5 million EU nationals who have been approved through this EU settlement scheme. So that's a very good news because we have an estimated number of, of about 3.4 million EU nationals in the UK. So we're uh, into the halfway mark, so to say, 
and there's still time to register under the EU settlement scheme, the deadline being December of 2020, provided you are resident in the UK as of 31st of October under a no-deal scenario. So that's a very important point to avoid disruption of the existing workforce. Now, what about EU-based employees who need to come over to the UK for meetings and conferences and other things, what are the restrictions that will apply to them after Brexit? The good news is that the government has proposed that there will be no fundamental changes to EU nationals who will be coming to the UK post-Brexit for business meetings or to attend seminars or conferences. So what this means uh, in practice is that they can continue to use the e-gates which is the automatic gates uh, that you can use to enter the UK. So that rule will not change uh, in the foreseeable future until new regulations come into place. But nothing has been introduced or publicized at this stage. Right. Now, would you share with our audience two or three practical suggestions for uh, things that U.S. companies need to do to comply with the Brexit implementation? Absolutely. And... Uh, the first thing is to to remain vigilant uh, to upcoming changes in immigration law because these changes can take place at any time uh, and often employers need to be uh, flexible in order to adjust their recruitment plans because uh, nothing is set in stone so we're playing uh, sort of like a game where the target keeps moving but our advice uh, remains to you know clients to remain vigilant and be prepared well, that seems like a very good idea. This, the target will keep moving. Anything else you want to share with the U.S. companies on this broadcast? What I can say, um, in the course of the last 10 years, the pendulum has shifted uh, from imposing many restrictions uh, on skilled migrants. Now everything is about liberalizing or making it easier for employers to uh, employ skilled migrants, whether they're from the EU or not. The whole set of changes being proposed uh, is, is now uh, going towards a better uh, sort of an immigration landscape for employers. And one of the recent example is uh, the revision to the shortage occupation list. And what this means is that employers who needed to advertise a particular role for 28 days before being able to recruit migrants will no longer have to do this, for example, for certain roles such as in the IT sector, software engineers, you no longer have to uh, advertise those roles, which saves a lot of time and effort for the employers. And we can see this uh, proposal, not proposal, but the rules uh, being changed uh, for EU nationals as well from January 2021. So the employers can continue to recruit, whether they're nationals or non-EU nationals, they can have easier immigration rules to work with. So we anticipate that the immigration rules will follow that trend uh, in the near future. But as you say, you need to be vigilant and flexible as these uh, rules evolve post-Brexit. Well, thank you very much, Yuichi, for sharing all of that uh, with our audience. Before we go on to the next subject, we're going to take a quick uh, break to hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. 
Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. And welcome back to Law Technology Now. We're continuing our discussion with Bird and Bird about Brexit and its implications for U.S. companies operating in the U.K. The next issue we're going to address is privacy. Privacy, obviously, is an issue of increasing concern around the world. And to help us understand what the changes Brexit will mean is the legal director in Bird and Bird's Privacy and Data Protection Practice in London, Liz Upton. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, thanks, Ralph. So Roger's introduction shared with us that EU law was going to be incorporated into UK law upon uh, the implementation of Brexit. So how will Brexit affect the privacy landscape, uh, privacy law landscape in the UK? Well, um, yes, you are correct. And Roger's explanation was, was correct. In practice, if you have UK companies, they're going to continue to be subject to the same data protection rules. So the provisions of the main European data protection law, the GDPR, will be incorporated directly into UK law. And it's going to sit alongside um, the existing UK Data Protection Act 2018 and will become known as the UK GDPR. However, that's not the end of the story. The EU version of the the GDPR, the regulation, is going to continue as well to apply directly to UK organisations to the extent that any of their processing activities are caught by the the very wide extraterritorial provisions that are set out in GDPR. So if they are offering goods and services to individuals in the EU or they're monitoring individuals in the EU, they will also be caught by the EU GDPR alongside the UK GDPR. Um, And the other point to note, there's another set of rules known as the e-privacy rules. And these are the rules that apply to marketing, cookies, and um, certain electronic communications. And again, these will carry on after Brexit um, as well. So I'm following what these uh, issues as you describe them. So what does it mean, what steps do the companies need to take to legitimately transfer personal data between EU and UK? Well, I think it's, I think it's, it's worth saying that in practice, the rules are going to stay the same, but there is still this data transfer issue, as you've mentioned. And the reason for that is because whilst GDPR itself allows EU member states to transfer data freely amongst themselves, what it does do is it places restrictions on data transfers out of the EU to those countries which are not recognized as offering adequate protection for such data. Now, adequacy is the term that's given to those countries that have data protection measures that are deemed to be essentially equivalent to EU standards. And once the UK leaves the EU, it's obviously no longer part of the member states, it's going to be considered to be one of these third countries for data transfer purposes. And it's only at that point, once it's left, that any kind of assessment of its adequacy status can can start to be considered. Now, whilst the European Commission has granted adequacy to to a limited number of countries so far, I think Japan being the latest one, it's by no means guaranteed that the UK would achieve this adequacy status, notwithstanding the fact that it's implementing GDPR into its own laws. And in fact, the Commission's made it very clear that it's not prioritising, nor is it fast-tracking the UK's adequacy status. So it's not going to happen 
before the end of October, nor is this going to happen at any time soon. And so what this means is that if you are an EU, if you've got EU um, organisations that are transferring to the UK, you're going to need to put other safeguards in place. And typically what that means is that you're going to need to put in place something called standard contractual clauses. And these are clauses that have been approved by the Commission um, and there are different sets depending on whether you're transferring to a UK organisation that's acting as a controller or as a processor of that data. It's a bit simpler if you've got data transfers going from the UK back to Europe because the UK government has stated that these will not be restricted and data can continue to flow freely that way. Okay, so this is, as, uh, as Yuichi said about the first issue, this is one that employers are going to need to be, companies are going to need to be vigilant about. So one other question, what about transfer of personal data from the UK to the US? Is that going to be affected by Brexit? Um, yes, so data transfers from the UK to countries outside of the EU, like the US, will also need to have safeguards in place. Now, you may already have those in place because whilst the UK was part of the EU, you would still need restrictions in place for those transfers to the US. What the UK government has confirmed is that there will be transitional provisions in place which will recognise of those you know, countries which were considered to be adequate from a European perspective. They will continue to recognise standard contractual clauses that have already been put in place under the European regime, which, which cover the UK entity, and also binding corporate rules. One thing that organisations may need to think about if they are Privacy Shield certified, which again is another safeguard um, that currently allows transfers from the UK or from Europe to the US, is that those organisations with those certifications will need to make some slight tweaks to their public commitments to recognise the fact that they will be accepting data from the UK. And there are some frequently asked questions on the Privacy Shield website covering that point and, and, and telling people what they need to do there. All right. Well, you've been very specific and clear about what companies need to do. Do you have any other additional practical suggestions for our audience? No, I, I think it was probably just recapping some of the things I, I was saying, really. I mean, I think what's really important is to understand what data is flowing within your, your business, particularly from the EU to the UK, and probably also from the UK to the US. You probably should have done some of that anyway as part of your general um, GDPR compliance project. But I think it's worth going back and revisiting that, particularly the, the EU to the UK point of view. And then you will need to either put in place some new standard contractual clauses, or you will need to update your existing intergroup data transfer agreements. And to do that, you will need to really understand what type of data is being transferred, um, who is it about, what, what are the purposes of the processing to make sure you can fill out all the relevant kind of appendices to those standard contractual clauses. You may also need to update some of the language in your privacy policies or privacy notices online where you talk about what data is being transferred outside of Europe. You will need to make sure that you've, you've mentioned the UK there as a third country. And then I think the last point was really just the, the privacy shield certification point. If, if that applies to your organisation, do go online to the Privacy Shield website and check what amendments you need to make to your statements to make sure you can carry on accepting data from the UK going forward. Well, thank you, Liz. Those were very valuable and practical suggestions for our audience, especially those who have operations uh, in the United Kingdom. And now we're going to turn to what is among the most fundamental implications of Brexit trade. Once Brexit occurs, the UK and the EU will lose the benefit of trading within one market, 
and will experience the burdens and complications of doing business across national borders. That's going to be a very fundamental change from the experience that U.K. businesses and, and others based in the U.K. have had uh, during uh, the EU. So to discuss this issue, these changes, we have Richard Eccles, who is co-leader of Bird and Bird's Brexit team and a partner who specializes in competition and trade law. So thank you for joining us, uh, Richard. Thank you, Ralph. So let's, let's start with an overview of the implications of Brexit for exports and imports between the U.K. and the EU. Okay, well, Ralph, as as you intimated, um, the UK will uh, on Brexit. It will become a third country in relation to the EU, uh, at least after from a hard Brexit. It will be outside the EU single market and uh, outside the EU customs union. Businesses exporting to and importing from the EU will have to operate in the same way as if they were dealing with any other country outside the EU, but but in the WTO. We assume that the UK will continue as a WTO member in its own right and on the same tariff terms as have applied while it's been a member through the EU, at least provisionally uh, for the time being. Um, But all of this will be quite a shock for companies that until now have traded only with businesses in the EU and not elsewhere, which will be the position for quite a number of companies, of trading companies. They will have to deal with export declarations and import declarations and prove the origin, the nature and the value of goods imported and exported between the UK and the EU, which they haven't had to do um, whilst the UK has been in the EU and in the single market and in the customs union. Tariffs will apply at least on imports to the EU based on the EU's WTO tariffs schedule and in principle also on imports to the UK from the EU. Um, because the UK will be leaving the Common Customs Union. And as a result of this, uh, there'll be a a risk of a double tariff charge if an international company uses the UK as a distribution hub for supplies to Europe, with tariffs arising on entry to the UK and and on onward supply into the EU. Companies may need to uh, revise their supply chains to deal with this. Also, there's a VAT aspect. The UK will be outside the EU VAT system. And what this will mean is that UK exporters may need to register for VAT in each EU member state to which they export instead of being able to rely on their home state VAT registration in the UK as at present. And uh, in principle, traders importing into the UK will have to account for VAT on importation rather than on subsequent sale. Which, uh, whereas they've been able to defer it um, whilst the UK has been in the EU, in the EU system. So there's quite a lot for trading companies to think about. Right. There's a lot to think about. And of course, it's a, it's a transition that's important because you've been in this uh, situation created by the EU. You were all one market, and now you've got to unravel and avoid, uh, as you say, implications such as a, a double tariff uh, prospect uh, that come from having moving from one system uh, to another. And, and we only can scratch the surface here in this uh, podcast. So what is uh, the UK government doing? What do you expect them to do to make things easier or more workable for traders after Brexit? Well, that's, that's a good question. And it's doing some, one quite big thing it's doing is that it's introduced what's called a temporary tariff regime, 
whereby tariffs on all imports into the UK from the WTO, not just the EU, will be reduced to zero for approximately 88% of products for a 12-month period. But more generally, the, um, the, the government has adopted various initiatives with the aim of keeping traffic flowing through ports. Uh, the government has introduced what's called a transitional simplified procedure, whereby traders can register to obtain more streamlined customs processing, avoiding having to make a full customs declaration in advance and enabling duty payments to be deferred using a duty deferral account, allow monthly direct debit payments, uh, making life easier. Um, but for this, companies will need to register for an, what's called an EORI number. That's an Economic Operator Registration and Identification Number. But having one of these numbers will also enable other custom simplification procedures to be used. For example, storing goods in authorized customs warehousing, goods are, for example, where goods are to be exported onwards, and also temporary storage under customs supervision, both of which avoid the double tariff charge that we've mentioned in, by ensuring that duties are only actually payable when the products are put into free circulation. Another thing that companies can take advantage of is the, the common transit convention procedure by obtaining authorized consignor and consignee, authorized consignee status. This enables customs procedures to be started and ended more smoothly at a trader's premises or at an approved customs facility. Traders will need a guarantee, you'll need to provide a guarantee for this, a comprehensive guarantee for all consignments or, or an individual guarantee for a single movement. But, and there are others I could talk about, but those I think are the main ones to give you a flavour of what the government's doing to try and ensure that as far as possible, the, the goods keep flowing through the ports. Right. And, that, and that's very helpful. And as you say, there's, there's much more detail here, many more issues, but that's a, a good window into uh, what the government is expected to do to facilitate the transition. So let's talk about tariffs just a bit more. To what extent will tariffs vary once the UK is no longer a member of the EU? And in particular, what's the impact on the technology industry? Well, the, the UK will be outside the EU Common Customs Union. That's from Brexit. So it's imports and exports between the UK and, and the EU 27, as we say. That means the continuing 27 EU member states will no longer be tariff-free as they have been whilst the UK has been in the EU. But they'll be subject to tariffs at the applicable WTO rates. At least we assume it will be the WTO rates that, that apply. This will make, obviously, UK originating products more expensive in the EU27. As regards imports from the EU27 to the UK, well, I, I've already mentioned the government's temporary tariff regime, which will result in zero import tariffs from the WTO countries, um, including EU countries, for 12 months. There'll be a government consultation on tariff arrangements after that. But in the meantime, this will avoid new tariff costs for most EU imports and will indeed reduce tariffs for imports from other WTO countries. But on the other hand, there'll be the, the risk of making domestic products in the UK less price competitive uh, against, the, um, against the EU competition. As regards, um, you asked about the impact on uh, technology companies, um, the tech industry. Well, we advise tech companies regarding their supply chains for, uh, as, uh, and preparing for Brexit. For example, in relation to telecommunications equipment and, uh, and other 
high-tech equipment to be installed in customers' premises, for example. Um, so everything that I've said about um, uh, about streamlined procedures at customs and about tariffs will apply to this type of equipment, um, the, these types of products. Where there's a difference for technology companies is, for example, where software is concerned. But if software is licensed internationally, this would not involve the supply of goods unless the software is um, put into physical form, like put on a disc or, or something. Where it is merely licensed, that's an intellectual property transaction, not a, not, not a good supply transaction. So, so there'll be no tariffs. And where software is provided as a service, again, without a physical supply, then again, there'll be no tariff barriers, but uh, depending on the circumstances, companies might need to check for any non-tariff barriers at a, at a national level. That's very helpful, Richard. So uh, just to sum up this part, do you have a recommendation or two uh, for U.S. companies doing business in the U.K. when it comes to these trade questions? Yeah, there are, there are a few things that, uh, that I think I can say uh, with reference to international suppliers, including U.S. companies. I mean, first, they should review their supply chains across Europe so as to avoid the double tariff risk of products entering the U.K. for re-export to the EU27. Um, and if products are imported into the U.K. for re-export to the EU27 or are converted to a finished product in the U.K. for onward export to the EU, proof of origin as well as of the nature and value of the goods will be needed on entry into the EU after Brexit. So a U.S. company may need to check that it can provide these declarations that uh, it might not have had to do, at least not for EU purposes, if it's been all its EU exports through the UK up until now, for example. Companies uh, should possibly plan stock levels for the UK and for the EU27 separately. And the companies should plan for the fact that EU technical standards bodies will not be able to certify products for the EU after Brexit. And persons established in the UK to hold regulatory responsibility will no longer fulfill EU product localization criteria and, and vice versa. Someone doing that in the EU27 won't fulfill the EUK criteria post-Brexit and so on. So businesses need to ensure the appropriate products are channeled with the relevant controls into the UK or the EU and that such regulatory requirements are fulfilled in the UK or the EU separately, respectively. Uh, finally, I would say companies may want to build stocks of products in the UK to avoid problems with administrative delays at ports. Uh, many companies have already done this, especially before the originally planned Brexit date of the 29th March of, the, of 2019. But as of today, there may still be time to implement these stock changes for the uh, currently expected Brexit date. Well, thank you very much, Richard. That that was very helpful, and, and it does uh, demonstrate just how uh, central these trade issues are uh, to Brexit and to the, the uh, challenge that transition will impose on people doing business in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much. And now we're going to finally bring back Roger Bickerstaff to talk about changes in the export control regime with a particular focus on software exports. So welcome back, Roger, and, and let's start with this issue. Why is this an important separate question under Brexit? 
Well, this is a particularly important issue for tech companies uh, that are doing business in, in Europe. So US tech companies that are either licensing software or getting involved in things like SaaS services, cloud services, uh, on a pan-European basis, then they need to be thinking about the consequences of the export control in relation to software uh, on a post-Brexit uh, scenario. And the situation we've got at the moment is that at the moment, all of the EU is a single territory for export control purposes. And under the export control uh, rules, uh, there's uh, controls relating to equipment, goods, and uh, which could have a, a potential military purpose. I think I think there's similar legislation in the states. And the way that that's been implemented in the states and in Europe, in, in Europe it's under something called the dual uh, use regulations, is that uh, encryption protocols, and these days not particularly sophisticated encryption protocols, uh, are covered uh, by those export control uh, regulations. And as I say, after Brexit, there's going to be two separate uh, territories, uh, the UK uh, and uh, the rest of the EU, uh, the 27 EU countries. And so people are going to need to think about uh, the control of exports between the UK and the EU and the EU and uh, the UK. It's, uh, it's, it's going to become a much more complicated territory post-Brexit. Right. Much more complicated a subject that already is fundamentally complicated and uh, very sensitive for all the obvious uh, reasons becomes more complicated now that these uh, the UK and the EU will be uh, separate jurisdictions. So what do US companies doing business in the UK need to do as a practical matter in light of these uh, impending changes? Well, the good, the good news is that although the underlying law is, is really quite complicated here. In practice, what uh, US companies uh, need to do is, is actually quite straightforward uh, because both the EU and the UK governments have said that they will authorize the export of controlled items to each other through general authorizations, general licenses, which will be freely ex available to all exporters. Uh, but of course, uh, in order to take advantage uh, of those general licenses, uh, exporters do need to register with the re relevant authorities in each jurisdiction in the UK and the EU in order to obtain the benefit of, of the general licenses. All right. So anything else, Roger, that you suggest that U.S. technology companies uh, doing business in the UK be considering doing now? Well, in this, in this area, what they need to be doing is to be looking at their software. As I say, it's not just software which is, you know, exported on, you know, a hard copy basis. It, it, it covers electronic downloads. It covers uh, the provision of cloud services on a, a cross-border basis. And they need to check out whether that software includes encryption protocols which are covered by the uh, export controls. And once they've done that, uh, they need to be mindful that actually the European rules are a little bit stricter than their European equivalent in that uh, in, in Europe, we don't have quite the same exclusions for consumer software that uh, you have in the States. And if, if they are covered, then uh, those U.S. companies will need to register with the U.K. authorities for exports from the UK to the EU, uh, and they'll need to notify the relevant authorities in the EU country for exports from the EU to the UK. 
Once they've registered, of course, it does bring in administrative uh, overheads and uh, they will be audited uh, by the relevant authorities. So they need to uh, prepare for those audit inspection. That uh, the last thing they want is for the authorities to turn up to do the audit and find they haven't got the relevant paperwork ready uh, and available to give to them. And those audits are usually carried out within three months of uh, initial registration. Well, thank you so much, Roger. And that's all the time we have for today's episode. Um, I want to say one further thing about Brexit. Obviously, the changes Brexit brings are truly profound for the United Kingdom, for the European Union, and for the world. And all of us will be paying careful attention as the way all of this works evolves in the years ahead. For today, Thanks to the Bird and Bird team for talking us through such a range of issues about the transition. We only were able today to scratch the surface, but I think we provided the audience with a good outline of the issues to be concerned about and how U.S. businesses operating in the U.K. can deal with this transition. We'll come back to the team from Bird and Bird from time to time for updates on Brexit. If there are particular issues that were raised in today's episode you'd like to know more about, you can feel free to contact any of the panelists directly. You can find their contact information on the Bird and Bird website or reach out to me and I'll facilitate that connection. So thank you to the Bird and Bird team and thank all of you for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Ralph Baxter, and until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.